Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A new report from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission tested the durability of a new kind of way for people to have their voting information tallied. Election poll books, or e-poll books, look to replace paper records and allow access to digital voter registration records. As you can imagine, though, with convenience comes the opportunity for that information to fall into the wrong hands. So how secure are e-poll books? To discuss the results, we welcome Chairwoman of the EAC, Christy McCormick. Ms. McCormick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you just sort of start out at the baseline here of explaining to us what e-poll books are and what are they designed to do in furthering American election technology? Sure. E-poll books have been in use for, I would say, since about late 2008, 2009 time period. Started with about you know 12 or 13 states using these maybe 15 years ago. We're up to 60% of the country using them at this point. They are electronic EPB or electronic poll book, and they seek to either supplement or replace the old paper poll books that we had at the polling places. Voters may recall and people may recall going into a polling place and a poll worker flipping through a huge book looking for your name. These will replace those books. They do replace those books. And generally, they will take, for example, an ID like your license and scan it or swipe it through the machine so that you get the correct ballot and that they check to make sure that you're an eligible voter to make sure that you've only been issued one ballot. There's many uses for these books. They also provide some data afterwards. So we know how many people checked into a polling place, how many people voted, and we can use the voter history and documentation of the voters voting. Got it. And yeah, that wait for while they're flipping through, for some reason, I'm always nervous. I don't know why I'm always scared they're not going to be able to find me. But it sounds like that this will kind of streamline things a little bit in in the states that are using it. And where is it being used today? So as I said, about 60% of the states, about 40 states are using them at this point statewide. And some states, about half and half, some states, uh, some only some jurisdictions are using them. And Some states allow the jurisdictions themselves to choose this kind of technology, and sometimes it's done on the state level. But it's uh, varied across the country. Many states use it across the whole state. It does speed up lines. It has sped up the process significantly, and it helps the poll workers, you know, make sure that they have accurate and up-to-date information for every voter that walks in the door. So that information is the center of what you all were trying to find out is if it is a secure way of holding people's voting information. What were you all trying to look at in testing this technology out? So we've been hearing for many, many years that this is something that the election officials want us to do to have this technology tested. We've had a testing program for the actual voting systems themselves that was authorized to the Election Assistance Commission through the Help America Vote Act after the Bush v. Gore race. But the election supporting technology, those things we don't vote on that might be connected to the Internet, for example, or to a cloud, those things have not been formally tested on a federal level. Many states have their own testing programs, but we have never had federal standards or federal testing of these, this type of equipment. This is something that election officials have been interested in. We've heard from congressmen senators that they're interested in this happening. So a couple of years ago, we formulated this program. We finally got funding to do this program last year from Congress. And so we initiated it and we invited a number of commercial manufacturers of these electronic poll books and state and local state jurisdictions and local jurisdictions 
who may have what we consider homegrown electronic poll book systems. Brought those in, got laboratories, accredited laboratories to do the testing. We had to draft some requirements. We based these on other requirements that states have that we have in our own voting system testing program. Brought those machines in. We had five commercial manufacturers and two state and local jurisdictions. So we had uh, seven e-poll books that we were testing. They are the majority of what the systems that are used in the country, especially the commercial. And we had them go through testing at laboratories to make sure that they were secure, that they are uh, accessible and usable. So for things like, you know, screen height, you know, multi-factor authentication, the security functions on them, what do they have in place to mitigate any sort of hacking that might be attempted? So a huge number of factors go into it, requirements of testing. And fortunately, all of the poll books that we tested passed those draft requirements. I think the one area that we would like to see some improvement in is the way that the manufacturers' Chrome-grown systems document the features that are available, the technical specifications, so that things that aren't visibly present to the eye, we can make sure are being tested and are secure and usable and accessible as necessary. We're speaking to Christy McCormick. She's the chair woman of the Election Assistance Commission, and she's also the designated federal officer for the Technical Guidelines Development Committee. Can you tell me a little bit about that committee and what it does? Is it more in line with what this test was looking at and looking at the technology surrounding an election rather than directly counting votes? Well, the Technical Guidelines Development Committee was a FACA, a federal assistance committee set up by the Help America Vote Act. Congress set that up to assist us in setting the standards and the requirements for voting systems themselves. They haven't been involved directly, although we have asked them for advice on this particular program, and we will be having a meeting of that group coming up shortly in early December, and we'll do a presentation to them. But they that committee is technical experts who help us with drafting and uh, making sure that we cover all the necessary requirements for testing voting systems. Got it. Okay. And so how deep can you go into the technologies that surround an election? As you mentioned, you know, you may not think of somebody actually hacking a voting machine, but, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, somebody getting into a laptop at at a voting place or something like that. Is that the next step in this or is it just going to be continually monitoring this technology itself? No, we're going to add some other technologies. This is our first election supporting technology that we are testing, and we'll set these requirements. And then we will turn to something like a blank ballot delivery. We're going to look at election night reporting. We're going to look at voter registration systems. Uh, So we're going to look at a number of different types of equipment and systems that support voting in the country. And it's important that all of these are looked at for security. We've never had any evidence that the actual voting system has been hacked into a real-time basis. Uh, We have had some white hat hackers in, you know, a different environment do that. So far, nothing has ever been shown to us to have shown that the systems themselves have been hacked. But we have had a couple of reports. I think in 2016, we saw that a voter registration database was put on the dark web. So, you know, we are concerned about the security of our voters' information and how it's used. And so this will help us uh, secure that data from outside hacking. Yeah, with election security, you know, really in the forefront of so many different news stories, I'd be apt not to ask a person like yourself in this position, you know, what is your overall sense of the security of American election technology? 
I think it's very secure. You know, there's always a risk. We always have to stay ahead of bad guys who try to hack into this and nation state actors who are interested in doing this. One thing I would say is that most voters don't realize how deep the layers of testing are. We do a lot of testing on our voting systems, not only on the federal level, but on the state level. Sometimes there's two different testing and certification programs, but also at the local level. Before every election, most jurisdictions, if not all, do something that's called logic and accuracy testing, where they actually put ballots through the actual machines that are going to be used on voting day to test to make sure that they're tallying those votes and that they're secure. Voters are usually, the public is usually invited to go visit Um, watch that process or even participate in it. But we do have very strict uh, guidelines for the security of our machines, where they're kept, how they're kept, and, you know, how they should be handled, the chain of custody of the machines. So I would say that they're very secure. I think there are some processes that may not be as secure as our voting voting machines themselves, but I have full confidence on our voting systems. We do sometimes see anomalies happen, Sometimes screens slip, you know, there's uh, environmental factors that affect the way a machine works, but that's not generally a security issue that's either human error or just environmental issues that we need to address. We do look at those kinds of things as well in the testing. We test the machines to very low temperatures and very high temperatures. We check to see whether, you know, there's a some sort of possibility of human error on how the machines are used and set up. But in general, I would say voters can be very confident in the security of our systems, and they should go vote on election day. We just had an election day, but we're coming up on 24. So make a plan to vote next year, both in your primaries, if you have one, and the general election. Christy McCormick is chairwoman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Ms. McCormick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. And you can find this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.